Well, it seems as though I am forever doomed to eat my words. It seems like every time it's my turn to get up and preach, we have a whole bunch of cold weather move in. So some of you are hoping that my next time to preach is not until July. Last week we were with Ellen's family for Christmas, enjoying the wide open spaces of Kansas. It was a great time of fellowship, but it's good to be back and to worship with everyone again this morning. This morning is the last of our five-part series based on the Long Journey Family Worship Guide, celebrating Advent and Jesus' incarnation, primarily from Luke's Gospel, although we spent a little time in Matthew and John as well. First week, we celebrated a journey into miracle as we considered the conception of Jesus, who was divine and human already as an embryo. We then celebrated a journey into humility as we watched the very humble circumstances of Jesus' birth in a world that made no room for him, literally, with no rooms to offer, but then no room for him either in their hearts. And yet it was a world that Jesus was determined to enter into and love, regardless of how low he had to journey. We celebrated a journey into worship as we saw the response of the shepherds and the magi who responded the only way that a mere human being can respond when in the presence of God, even when that God is veiled and hidden behind the curtain of humanity. And then we celebrated a journey into mystery as we worshipfully failed to contemplate with our feeble minds the greatest truth ever revealed. How the one who cannot be contained managed to squeeze into finite containment without shedding any of his deity, without giving up even an ounce of his humanity. And last week, we took a journey to peace and watched the final wish of an old and dying man granted in the form of a baby boy. And that wish was for his peace, his own peace with God, And the peace with God as people would find in the person of the little boy. And that peace was granted. And so we come to this morning, our passage this morning. We will finish our journey series with a journey into God's presence. We will see God's presence manifested through the adolescent Jesus who himself is seeking God's presence. And after admiring the beauty of God's presence in Christ, we will find that God's presence is disruptive. It interrupts our lives. It doesn't come to us in a gentlemanly fashion, but instead can be terribly inconvenient. And finally, we're going to see that God has engineered our relationship with him in such a way that although his presence is a constant interruption in our lives, he has placed a hunger, a craving for his presence in us that ruins us, that ruins our taste for anything else that tries to act as a substitute. This is the good news concerning the purpose for which God, the Son, journeyed. A purpose that he fulfilled in his own incarnation and is still fulfilling through us as he continues to call us to his presence and to establish his presence through the church. It's found in Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 52. Now, as parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, They went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. 
His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But when they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And when he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them, his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Let's pray. Father, we come to you again humbly this morning, confessing our need again for your spirit to give us light and insight into your word. We ask that through your word you'll convict us and change us. We ask that through your word you would help us to know of your presence here with us through the Son and by the Spirit. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. Well, it's enough to bore anyone to tears. Victor Hugo's painstaking description of each building that used to adorn the city of Paris in the 15th century as he recounts it brick by brick in his novel, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. It's both a history lesson and it's an older generation's lament for times gone by. Hugo is writing in the 1830s and he's lamenting the passing away of so much wonderful Gothic architecture from Paris as it was torn down from one revolution to the next and replaced with something worse in Hugo's opinion. And he ends one section by writing, Our fathers had a Paris of stone, but our sons are going to have a Paris of plaster. It's the characteristic and often accurate view of youth that comes from an older generation. Times used to be better, but they're getting worse now with this new generation, this young generation. But it's not the view of the young Jesus that Luke gives us. But before we get ahead of ourselves and dive into the passage, we should probably get a little bit of context. When you read the Gospel of Luke together with the book of Acts, which I think is how Luke wanted the church to read him, Luke chapters 1 and 2 feel very, very different from the end of Acts, from Acts chapter 28. The beginning of Luke sounds a lot like the prophetic and the historical books of the Old Testament, with Jewish priests offering sacrifices and prophets making prophecies, and Israelites hoping for a promised Messiah. But Acts 28 feels very different. It feels very removed from this world, and sounds very Gentile, very cosmopolitan. 
the lonely Jewish apostle who's been laboring among the Greeks and the Romans for decades, and he finds himself under arrest in the very capital of the greatest empire to ever exist in the Western world. And one of Luke's great themes in these two books is how the gospel originated with the Jews through a divine Jewish savior, but was then largely rejected by the Jews and was then taken to the heights of Gentile society and government, literally to the ends of the known world, as Jesus promised in Acts 1, verse 8. But already in Luke's birth narrative, Luke 1 and 2, we already see the strong themes of Jesus having come to unite Jew and Gentile into one new people. Something we might expect from Luke, who was a traveling companion of Paul, the missionary to the Gentiles. And this comes out in Mary's song, the Magnificat, where the God who has promised to send Jesus has helped his servant Israel by remembering his covenant promises to Abraham and his offspring. It's underscored again by Zechariah, who has his powers of speech restored to him after John the Baptist, his son, is born. And Zechariah speaks of a horn of salvation in the house of David, underlining Jesus' relationship to Israel. But then Luke chapter 2 starts off with a Gentile bang by reminding us of who was in charge of the whole world at that time, namely Gaius Octavian Julian, the adopted nephew to Julius Caesar. And Octavian actually becomes Rome's very first emperor, taking the name Caesar, his family name, and Augustus, meaning first citizen or first among equals, which was a very sly and political way of telling the people that you're from them and you're for them, even though everybody knows that you're quite above them now. And so Jesus, the King of Kings and the Emperor of Emperors, was born during the reign of the very first Gentile Emperor of the Western world. And it's certainly not a coincidence, but it's a message from God that the real King of the universe was sneaking into the empire of the man who only thought he was. And in Acts 28, this worldly Emperor Nero He's going to have to decide what to do with the universal ruler of all creation as Paul is getting ready to tell him about. But throughout Luke 2, Jesus is associated with David's line and David's city and David's Bethlehem. He's also associated with the Old Testament law, being circumcised on the eighth day and being presented at the temple as the firstborn, just as the law demanded. He's also prophesied over and proclaimed by Simeon and Anna at the temple. And Simeon reminds us in this very Jewish context that Jesus shall be light to the Gentiles. And you're sitting there thinking, all right, all right, enough of the history lesson. Starting to sound like Victor Hugo. You're killing me, Berger. But here's why all of this matters. In our passage this morning, Luke is giving us the hinge. Luke is giving us the crossroads. He's giving us the point at which all the promises of the divine king and the human king in the Old Testament converge in one person. The point at which all the promises to rescue God's old people and the promises for God to create a new people are met. 
The point at which God's people being at their lowest point and God's enemies ruling at their highest are both about to experience a great reversal. And this was all going to happen through the manifestation of God's presence in a way that no one had dared imagine before and in a way that no one has comprehended or figured out since. This may be a little too much of a glimpse into the weirdness that is a burger family reunion. But there's a little running joke when my siblings and our families get together that often either me or one of my brothers will randomly pick up one of the many small children usually running around and then we'll hold them high over our heads for the rest of the people in the room to see. And it's happened enough times now that the rest of us know that when this happens, we're all supposed to start singing Elton John's song, Circle of Life, from the Disney movie, The Lion King. Because at the beginning of that movie, this is what the baboon does with the little lion cub, Simba, right after he's born. Simba is the royal heir to his father's throne. And this is the formal moment of presentation to all the other animals of the African king. All the other animals of the African plain are bowing down on their knees before their future king at this moment. It's the epiphany. It's the manifestation, the presentation of Simba and the meaning of his identity to all of his subjects. My family does it as a joke. But Luke isn't joking in this passage. He's manifesting God to us in young flesh. Today is Epiphany Sunday, the last Sunday in the Advent season when the church has historically celebrated the presentation of the incarnate king after his birth, but usually before the beginning of his formal ministry. And Epiphany means manifestation. And in our passage this morning, the adolescent God is being manifested to us as human, as righteous, and in humility. Jesus' humanity jumps out at us from every verse. The eternal, timeless, changeless God is 12 years old in verse 42. And he can only be 12 because he's also human. In verse 46, the God who sits on the throne, which overlooks all creation, is sitting at the feet of men. The God who knows all things is asking questions and taking notes. And in verse 52, God is growing in wisdom and physical stature and in a good reputation before God and before other human beings. His learning and growth and wisdom speak to his humanity. As verse 52 makes clear. And this makes some of us a little nervous to think about Jesus having to learn. But it shouldn't. Let me ask, do you think Jesus came into this world speaking Aramaic and Hebrew and Greek and Latin? Of course he didn't. He had to learn it. He had to learn those things. Jesus had to learn language. I'll be honest, 
I don't really like the song Away in the Manger at Christmas time. And my apologies to those of you that do. But the line that says, The little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. I mean, come on. Give me a break. It sounds like the line was written by a consortium of Victorian era mothers who were trying to get their kids to shut their traps. Because here's the deal, Jesus screamed his little head off as a baby because that's what all little babies do until he could learn to speak Aramaic like Mary and Joseph. Because Jesus was human in every way that you and I are except without sin. And his journey into fulfilling all righteousness for us would mean nothing if he wasn't. God's presence is also being manifested through Jesus, the righteous. The one who, like so many others, was born under the law, also was, unlike anyone else, fulfilling it for the first time. No human being ever had until this one, and no one else has since. This is why throughout chapter 2, Luke is careful to note that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day. That as the firstborn child in his family, he was presented at the temple and sacrifices were offered as the law demanded. And now in our passage, here he is again doing what a 12-year-old Jewish boy should do. Preparing to be considered an adult male next year. Fully responsible before God and his nation as an adult at the age of 13. And so he's learning about his God and about his law from the best teachers of the land. And at the end of our passage, in verse 51, after his parents find him, he submits himself to them, obeying his parents, fulfilling the fifth commandment. And so from one legal reference to another, we're subtly invited to join in with Luke on a little joke of his own. The Pharisees and scribes who have done nothing but study the law and learn the law and teach the law and yet resemble the law so poorly have now come into contact with the law incarnate. The one whose very nature is imprinted on the pages they read. The law walking before them in size nine sandals. The law looking up at them with an acne-scarred face and asking theology questions through the braces in his mouth. And of course, it's here where we see the manifestation of God and his humility. God the teenager is also God the listener the learner, humbly sitting at the feet of mere men and teachers of the law, many who are going to be his enemies in 20 years. When Jesus himself was going to be daily teaching in the temple in Luke 19 and 20, the one who could have taught them everything is instead humbly learning. And the one who had everything to learn, those who had everything to learn, would prefer to remain ignorant and stupid and self-assured rather than admit their need. And the difference between the two is humility. 
humility. The all-powerful God, more humble than His tiny creatures. Humility, perhaps the Christian virtue most lacking from Christians and most needed to display who Christ really is to our world. And although God's presence is manifested to us here through a young Jesus in His humanity and in His righteousness and in His humility, it doesn't explain to us why Jesus stayed behind at the temple. To find this, we have to read Jesus' own words, His own explanation. It seems, based on verse 44, that Joseph and Mary assumed that Jesus was probably with relatives or close friends in the caravan that was leaving for home after finding out that he wasn't with either one of them. But this passage, it's not about bad parenting. Nor does it blame Joseph and Mary for not making sure that Jesus was with them. In fact, the passage goes out of its way not to blame Joseph and Mary, but to blame Jesus. Jesus himself makes it clear that it's his fault. It's his responsibility. It's his decision for remaining at the temple. Not the carelessness of his parents. When I was a child, I remember hearing my mom remark on this passage one time, finding myself shocked at her when she said, I would have dragged him home and given him a good spanking. I think at the time I probably kind of quickly backed away from her in case a lightning bolt with her name on it appeared out of heaven. But my mom's response, I think, is actually the response the reader is kind of supposed to feel. Where does a 12-year-old boy get off causing that much trouble for mom and dad? Especially in a context where disobedience to parents was a much bigger deal than it is in our context. And that question sets us up, along with Mary and Joseph, to hear Jesus' remarkable response. Jesus' first words in Luke's gospel. Verse 49. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my Father's house? The one who was God manifest was seeking the presence of God himself. Jesus had to be in the temple. The place which housed the presence of God among his people. At the beginning of Luke, the temple is is seen just as it was in the Old Testament. It's the place where heaven kisses earth. The place where God had made his home among men. The place the people of God go in order to worship, in order to be cleansed from sin. You didn't go to the temple because it was a great extracurricular activity for your family? You didn't go because it was a bastion of family values waiting to help you fix your kids. You didn't go because you liked the music or liked the particular priest who was going to be preaching the Torah that particular Sabbath. You went because it was the only place where spiritual water was to be found in the middle of the desert. You went there at that place because at that place was life. And it wasn't to be found anywhere else. 
And you didn't think about not going any more than you didn't think about not eating or drinking or breathing. You went, not because you liked it. You went because you needed it. You went because that's where God was. But by the end of Luke's writings, at the end of Acts... The theology regarding the temple has changed dramatically. And the temple isn't a building in one place. It's a people found in every place. And part of Luke's mission is to show us how we got from Luke 1 to Acts 28. And the key to it all, the centerpiece of it all, is the short amount of time when the temple wasn't just a building. And yet yet it wasn't an entire chosen people filled with the Spirit yet either. But it was just one man. He had come to be in his father's house, but in about 20 years, he would dare his teachers to tear down the real temple, the temple of his body, so that he could raise it back up again. And not just for the Pharisees, but for the whole people of Israel, and even for his parents, and for us. Jesus shows that God's presence is always a massive interruption for us. This account is the first fulfillment of Simeon's prophecy in chapter 2, verses 34 and 35, that Jesus' life was going to bring pain to Mary. She and Joseph, I mean, they're completely distraught throughout this story, as they should be, as any of us would be. When they finally find Jesus after looking for three days, Mary says, Son, don't you know what great distress you caused us? And in response, Jesus, he doesn't talk about travel plans and he doesn't offer excuses. He talks about relationship. Jesus talks about his unique relationship to his father. Jesus essentially says, Mom and Dad, This relationship that I'm talking about, it it determines everything about me. It determines what I do and what I don't do and when I will do it. It determines where I will be and where I won't be. It shapes what I love and what I hate. In fact, this relationship determines who I am. It determines my very identity. And we're not just talking about priorities here. I'm not just saying God's number one on my list and that he gets the best of my time and my energy and then I roll off God time and give everybody else the scraps of what's left over. Rather, I want you all to know that what I do and say and am will be done inside of and will be defined by this relationship all the time. Jesus' goal for you and me is to also live a life so defined by this relationship. The presence of God that interrupts. And like Mary, our attachment to Jesus means that he's going to do simply more than inconvenience our lives. The same Jesus who came to bring us peace with God And peace between all of his children also can bring upheaval. Not because he delights in hardship, 
Because those who are attached to him and know the joys of obedient and sacrificial fellowship with the Father, we've been ruined for all other tastes. We're not going to settle for the fleeting pleasures of a life aimed at domestic tranquility. In his sovereignty, Jesus often uses our plans, even our best laid plans, to accomplish his will. But we cannot be mistaken, Jesus is no respecter of our plans. And our plans are usually concerned with achieving more pleasure or more safety and security for ourselves and our families. Or even a greater sense of self-worth through successful service and ministry and occupation. But our attachment to God manifest means that we will often be frustrated because his greater goals for us are none of these things. But rather to create a greater hunger for himself in us. To repeatedly place us on three-day journeys and restless nights with quivering hearts where we want nothing more than to simply find Him because we know that in having Him we'll need nothing more and we'll want nothing more. This is His greater goal for us. Daniel Plainview is an oil man and he's a family man. At least that's what he tells the rural townspeople of late 19th century Southern California when he's trying to gain permission from them to drill for oil on their land. But instead, throughout the entire movie of There Will Be Blood, we find that Daniel Plainview's promises of building schools and churches and strong relationships and community ties They're just an act used to get what he really wants, which is the blood under the ground, the oil that's going to make him unfathomably rich. And as Daniel Plainview drills deeper for oil, his love for his own success and his contempt for others drills deeper into his heart. And at one point he says... There's a whole ocean of oil under our feet. And no one can get at it except me. I have a competition in me. And I want no one else to succeed. And as Daniel succeeds more and more, he pushes his co-workers and his fellow townspeople, and eventually even his own son, right out of his life. As he draws more blood out of the ground, he must take more and more blood from others to get it. And at the end of There Will Be Blood, Daniel is completely alone, having pushed away any joyful and redeeming presence from his life, even though he sits in a palace. And some of you with us this morning, need to know that apart from knowing God as he is manifested to us in Jesus, apart from a relationship that Jesus gives us with his Father and with himself, given to us through his own blood that drips from the cross for our sins, we're all Daniel Plainview. Left to ourselves, 
Our hunger will never be the same as Jesus is in this passage. To be in his Father's presence. Rather, the competition in us will always ruin us. Will always lead us deeper, burrowed into the hard rock of a life spent in constant attempts to satisfy whatever we think is going to satisfy us in the moment. While it simply destroys others around us. We all come into the world as Daniel Plainview. But as Psalm 16 tells us, and as the story of a teenage God who hungers for the presence of his father tells us, only in God's presence are there pleasures forevermore. And so this morning you need to trust in Jesus' blood shed for you. You need to trust in and his resurrection, and his defeat of death for you. And you need to find rest in his presence. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, as your word has told us this morning, you have placed in us your people, an insatiable desire for your presence. And you have met that desire through your Son. Because in your Son, we have fullness of joy. In your Son, you've come to make your home with us, you've come to make your abode with us, so that you and the Son and the Spirit have come to dwell within us. And it's through fellowship with the mystical Jesus that we have fellowship with you and the Spirit. And it's all because of what he's done on our behalf. It's all because we can approach you in the righteousness he's given us. And there is joy here that can be found nowhere else. And so we pray that this week, our journey, our continued journey into your presence would be a journey of joy. Regardless of what happens this week, regardless of the challenges and the difficulties the unseen interruptions and hardships and maybe even tragedies, we pray that the joy of the presence of God given to us through Jesus would be greater. We pray these things in the name of the Son and by the Spirit. Amen.